And please go ahead and open your Bibles to our passage for today, which is Matthew 18, 7 to 14. Again, that's Matthew 18, 7 to 14. In my son's room, there's a, a wooden dresser. It's actually immediately to the right when you walk in. It's probably around five feet tall or so, and it tends to collect the usual kinds of odds and ends that a dresser in a room inhabited by two rambunctious and messy boys is bound to collect. But if you were to look through the mess for a moment, maybe clean away all the Legos and the Hot Wheels cars that have found their way up on top of that dresser, you see a handful of trophies sitting there. There's a hockey trophy, a basketball trophy, a couple of football trophies, maybe three or four soccer trophies. It's really a rather impressive array of accomplishments for a couple of boys who are only three and five years old, or at least it would have been to me when I was growing up. Up until high school, I'd probably only earned maybe three or four trophies in my entire sports career. So if I'd walked into a room of a pair of brothers who had earned as many as eight trophies all before the first grade, I would have thought that I was in the presence of the next Babe Ruth or the next Michael Jordan. So I would have been impressed. That is until I started to inspect the trophy to see what it was for. That's one of the first first things any competitive young athlete is going to do when they come across a trophy. They're going to want to know, what league is this for and what place did they get? And they'll do this, again, because they're competitive and they want to know how they'll measure up. And so they'll look closer and they'll ask themselves, how good is this kid really? That's what I would have done when I was 10 years old. But while the 10-year-old me would have been impressed by my son's trophies at first glance, that feeling would have quickly disappeared upon inspecting the plaques on these trophies and read 2015 spring soccer season, 2015 fall football season. Don't misunderstand me. I'm very proud of my boys. There's a, there are a couple of budding young athletes, and they try the very best and the hardest that they can do to be the very best football player or soccer or basketball player they can be. But those trophies are participation trophies. And that's a concept that was pretty foreign to me and my friends growing up. When I was a boy, trophies weren't given out simply for showing up. You had to earn them. You had to be among the best of the very best in your league in order to deserve them. They had to be awarded to you in recognition of your superiority or excellence. Otherwise, they're utterly worthless. After all, what's the point of a trophy if it isn't to show it off, right? I mean, that's the whole point, isn't it? It's a commemoration of your greatness. And if you you put it on your dresser, you put it on your dresser so that other boys can walk into the room and know that you can play. That's the reason for trophies. And of course, that's exactly why so many sports leagues have started to move towards participation trophies over the past 25 years. They can discourage the loser as much as they encourage the winner. So a lot of leagues have determined to more or less do away with them or or give them out simply for participating. Ten-year-old me, though, he would have been completely revolted by the idea of a participation trophy. As a matter of fact, when I was in fourth grade, I was named an alternate to my baseball league's all-star game. And they didn't give me a trophy because then they didn't hand out trophies for almost all-stars. But perhaps sensing the, we, the, the winds of change, the league did tell, my, tell parents that if their child 
was named an alternate, and they could, if they wanted, they could buy them a trophy. They could go down to the local trophy store and they'd make one up for them. And my mom did. I wasn't one of, I wasn't the athlete that my brother was, and she wanted to encourage me, so she went down to the trophy store, bought the all-star trophy, and I proudly set it on a shelf in my room. And my friends still won't let me live it down to this day. I have a friend who to this day reminds me, your mom bought your all-star trophy, and then he laughs at me. We didn't grow up with this mindset. You didn't get trophies just for participating when I grew up. You earned them. I mean, a, a participation trophy, that's something that like communists do, right? That's what I would have thought when I was 10. And, and truth be told, it's still something I have to kind of bite my lip and accept when they're handing them out at the end of the season. Depending on the generation you grew up in, you might be the same way. You might get offended when you hear that such and such league or such and such competition hands out trophies because everyone gets a trophy we're all winners i mean if you're like me when you hear that you're screaming inside you're going no that's not true we're not all winners some of us are good and they're winners they deserve to be recognized the rest don't after all this whole idea that we're all winners it doesn't seem fair does it if we're really thinking about this concept that's what offends us about it isn't it There are some who put in the hard work, who practice and develop their skill, and because of that, they're better, and they deserve to be recognized for their discipline and their effort, don't they? Why should they be brought down and treated like they're the same caliber of athlete as everyone else, just because they're going to hurt someone's feelings, right? That's life, isn't it? We can't all be winners, can we? So why would you encourage the lazy an unmotivated athlete, by putting him or her on the same level as the one who worked hard to become an all-star. That's what people like you and I think, isn't it? Participation trophies aren't fair. So you may be offended at this concept. But do you realize that in a sense, this is how it works in the kingdom of heaven? God hands out participation trophies, or something like it. Did you know that? We talked about this last week when we looked at Matthew 18, 1-6. In Matthew 18, 1-6, the disciples asked Jesus, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And understand, that's them vying for the MVP trophy. They want to know who's best so they can put that on their shelf and show it off to their friends. And Jesus replies by saying, well, none of you. In terms of your skill... You all kind of stink. No one's an all-star. And you have to realize that if you even want to be on my team. But, that being said, if you humble yourself and you join me, you'll get a trophy nonetheless. There's not one single disciple who's great in the kingdom of heaven, Jesus says. It's everyone. Everyone is great in my kingdom. All are valued and cherished by God equally. Now again, the competitors among us are likely to hear this statement and think to ourselves, wait a second, that's not fair. You mean after all my hard work, the lazy disciple is going to matter just as much to God as me? That's not right. That's not fair. And it isn't fair. It's grace. Yes, it isn't fair 
to give those who have earned the trophy the same reward as those who haven't. But fortunately for us, God doesn't operate according to what's fair, because if He did, then none of us would be getting into the kingdom of heaven. That's the reality of the kingdom of heaven. Not a single one of us deserves the crown of life that God is going to award to His children. And yet everyone who believes on Christ will still get one. Not because they earned it, but because Jesus did. If you can think about it kind of like this, it's as if Jesus is Michael Jordan. And when we believe on Him, He puts us on His team. And not because we're great basketball players, but because we're not, actually. He pities us. He feels compassion for us. And so He puts us on His team. And then when the game starts, we all stand around as we watch Jesus block the shot and then dribble down court and drain the three in the defender's face. And then we stand in amazement when on the next possession he steals the ball, weaves through the defense by himself, and dunks on the competition. I mean, sure, we try to play defense. He may even occasionally pass us the ball and let us take a shot, but there's no mistaking who's responsible for the win when the game is over. Like, we're there. We're on the same team with him. And so when the championship trophies are handed out, we'll get the same one that's awarded to Jesus. But make no mistake, it's not because we earned it, right? We didn't win that championship. All we did was show up. We're just participants. And yet we get the same trophy. Don't get me wrong, according to the rest of the New Testament, we know that there's still going to be other awards handed out on the last day. Jesus makes it clear that He's going to reward His disciples according to their faithfulness. So there's going to be some distinction among Jesus' disciples. You're still going to have your your sixth man of the year award and the like. But those are essentially consolation prizes. Nobody's going to be admiring any of Jesus' disciples for their skill as players when it's all said and done. Nobody's going to be sitting around thinking that any of their efforts ultimately contributed to the team's championship run. For that, all the glory is going to go to Christ alone. So you might not like this idea of participation trophies, of the slow, lazy, chubby kid getting the same reward as the hard-working star athlete. But that's essentially the gospel. We're all the slow, lazy, chubby kid being carried to a championship on the back of a prized athlete. And it's this point that Jesus brings up before His disciples in Matthew 18, 1-6. They want to know who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And His response is to say, well, no one. And everyone. None of you are great in the sense that you mean. And none of you are great in terms of what you contribute. None of you are are worthy of admiration. But you're all loved and cherished by God with the same kind of love that He has for me. Every single disciple who humbles himself like a child and depends on Jesus by faith, that disciple is adopted into God's family. He becomes a child of God. And God does not divvy out His love in portions, awarding more love to the greatest and less to the least. He may be pleased with some more than others, but He loves them all equally. It's on the basis of this idea that Jesus says in verse 5 that to receive one of His disciples is to receive Him. They're all treated with that kind of regard in the kingdom of heaven. And because this is true, verse 6, one had better treat each of his disciples with the utmost care. To cause one of his disciples to stumble, well, it would be better to drown drown in the sea than to do that. God loves them that much. He is 
jealous for them. He is fiercely protective of all of them. So this is how greatness is defined in the kingdom of heaven. Every single disciple in God's kingdom is great. Everyone is loved. There's not a sliding value system where one is more important than the other, where one can boast over another. They all matter. Well, if this is true, then how should this affect the way that Jesus' disciples relate to one another? How should this concept affect relationships in the church? That's a question that Jesus is going to answer in our passage this morning as he continues to respond to this question about greatness from verse 1. So this question has been asked. We saw the first part of Jesus' answer last week. He's continuing to answer it here in Matthew 8, 7-14. Here he's going to explain how this understanding of greatness, this idea that every one of his disciples matters to God, he explains how this should affect relationships in the church. Let's go ahead and read the passage. But for context sake, let's start back in verse 1, so that we can get the whole flow of the passage as we move into our passage for today, which again is verses 7 to 14. Matthew 18, 1 to 14. Matthew says this. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin... Cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame with two hands or two feet uh, than with with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown in the hell of fire. See See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven... Their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Once again, Jesus is explaining how the concept of greatness that he outlined in verses 1-6 to should affect his disciples' relationships with one another. And in this passage, we see Jesus deliver two expectations for his disciples. These are two ways that he expects each of you to relate to your fellow disciples in light of your shared greatness. The first expectation is this. Number one, do not lead any fellow disciple astray. Do not lead any fellow disciple astray. So in verses 2-6, to Jesus has given a definition and explanation for greatness in the kingdom of heaven. He finished that up, of course, by saying that it would be better for a person to be drowned in the bottom of the sea than to cause one of his disciples 
to stumble. Now in verse 7, he launches off of that statement and into a new section of his response with this incredibly strong warning saying, Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. Again, this warning is based off of what Jesus has just said. In verse 6, there are temptations in the world, and these temptations are inevitable. They are necessary. Um, That's the way that Jesus says it in verse 7. They can't be avoided. So long as there are sinners in the world who rebel against God, there will be temptations. So Jesus' disciples will have to face and overcome stumbling blocks. That's simply unavoidable. But at the same time, woe to the one through whom they come. And why is that? Well, verse 6, For whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in Jesus to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and drown in the depth of the sea. So there are going to be serious consequences for the one who causes one of Jesus' disciples to sin. Because each of his disciples are fiercely loved by God. That's what Jesus declared in verse 6. And that declaration serves as the basis for this warning in verse 7. It's also the basis for Jesus' statement in verse 10. If you notice, in verse 10 and verse 14, there are two kind of parallel statements where Jesus speaks of his, quote, uh, heavenly, of his, quote, Father who is in heaven who has his, uh, the, the regard he has for his, quote, little ones. So there's these two statements which mirror one another with this very similar language, and they serve as the conclusion of two different expectations that Jesus has for his disciples. Jesus communicates an expectation, and then he follows it up with one of these explanatory statements about his Father's love for these little ones. The first concluding statement occurs in verse 10 where Jesus says, See that you not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. So once again, Jesus stated back in verses 5-6 to that there are going to be serious consequences for anyone who causes one of his disciples to sin because to do something to one of them is to do it to him. They are regarded with this kind of esteem in God's eyes. Now here in verse 10, he builds upon this concept. He continues to explain the warning that he issued in verse 7 by telling his disciples that they must not despise any of these little ones because their angels see the face of his Father in heaven. And it would appear that by this, he means that there are angels in heaven who are tasked with guarding or protecting Jesus' disciples. And that these angels have direct access to God and are able to therefore intercede on their behalf. Now these are not guardian angels in the way that people like to think of guardian angels today. Uh, today, often, today when you often hear of guardian angels, uh, the assumption is that each person has an angel assigned to them to pers- you know, personally watch over and protect them, give them physical protection, whatever it may be. If you've ever, if you've ever seen It's a Wonderful Life, uh, for example, uh, there's an angel that's sent to help George Bailey from killing himself. That's a guardian angel in the way that a lot of people think of guardian angels. The scripture gives us no indication that such a thing exists. You can't find a chapter or verse that states that God assigns individual angels to watch over disciples or to give them physical protection. This verse would be the closest example you could find to such a passage, but it doesn't indicate anywhere that each and every believer is personally assigned an angel for their protection. 
What you do see in Scripture is that God does apparently assign particular angels to watch over certain groups of people. For example, in Daniel 12.1, God indicates that the archangel Michael is apparently given charge over the people of Israel specifically. And what you see from passages like Daniel 12 and Daniel 10 is that when one of God's little ones come to him in humility and faith, as Daniel does in Daniel 10, God sends these angels to help and protect them in their faith. That's what the angel Gabriel tells Daniel in Daniel 10:12. He says that from the first day that Daniel set his heart to understand God's word and humbled himself before God, his words had been, had been heard and that he, Gabriel, had been sent uh, because of those words. Gabriel, by the way, is one of these angels that stands in the presence of God, according to Luke 1.19. So there may not be guardian angels per se, but there are angels who stand in the presence of God and they contend for God's people. And they can be sent at a moment's notice in order to aid and protect them. The the force, therefore, of verse 10 is that you don't want to despise any of these little ones who are precious in God's sight. You don't want to be a cause of temptation or stumbling for them because if you do, if you are a cause for stumbling, then one of these angels may very well be sent to contend against you in protection of God's people. Now, don't ask me how that works. I, I, I don't know the answer to that question. But I don't think you have to know how this works for the force of this statement to still come out. The point is that spiritual forces exist, that they are at work in this world, and Jesus is reinforcing this warning about temptation by saying that if someone should despise one of his disciples, then one of God's holy angels might well be sent to contend against them. Regardless of how the unseen spiritual world interacts with our world, that should still get your attention. Nobody should want this to happen to them. Now, the word here in verse 10 for despised is an interesting one. It's kataphroneo in the Greek, and it means to look down on, despise, or to scorn. And if you put this word within the context of Jesus' response, then you can see that this goes back to the question that the disciples asked back in verse 1, which again is the question that Jesus is still answering here. The disciples want to know who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, and they're asking that question because they want to exalt themselves and look down on other people. Here, as Jesus warns about temptations of sin, he says, So don't look down on one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven their angels see the face of my Father who is in heaven. So Jesus is saying, stay away from that attitude of pride, because if it leads you to make one of these little ones stumble... Well, these little ones that humble themselves before me, God will protect them from you. That's interesting because this means that Jesus is tying this attitude of pride to temptation for sin among his disciples. He warns about tempting his disciples to sin, and then he concludes by saying, So don't look down on these other disciples because that would be dangerous. The threat. The warning is rooted in the disciples' pride. That's going to cause them to lead one of Jesus' disciples into sin. That's why Jesus concludes that warning about temptation by saying, so don't despise one of these little ones. It's the pride inherent in that kind of disregard that's going to cause someone to produce the temptation that will invite God's judgment. So what is Jesus driving at here? 
Well, I think you find the answer back at the end of chapter 17. If you recall, when I preached on uh, Jesus' response to the temple tax back in Matthew 17, 14, or 24 to 27, I said that, the, that that passage sets up this discussion here in chapter 18. In fact, I think it's more than likely that the dispute over the temple tax actually happened much earlier in Jesus' ministry, and Matthew intentionally moved it here, set it alongside chapter 18 in order to shade the meaning of this passage. I've I've mentioned that before. Matthew is the one uh, of the gospel writers who will do that. He'll kind of move things around. Um, That's possibly what's going on here. Like Matthew wants us to read chapter 18 in light of Jesus' response to the temple tax. He wants us to read Jesus' answer to the temple tax into chapter 18 because it helps clarify the point that Jesus is making right here. It helps us to understand what Jesus is telling his disciples when he answers their question about greatness. And again, I think there's several indicators that Matthew went out of his way to do this, that the temple tax actually occurred much earlier, but he saw it helpful to chapter 18, and so he pushed it back in his presentation so we could read chapter 18 in light of that response. But even if he didn't, that's still the context for Jesus' response here. Wow, so what's going on here? In, in Matthew 17, 27, the word that Jesus uses for to give offense. You see that there? Look at Matthew 17, 27. The word that Jesus uses for to give offense. It's the word scandalizo in the Greek. And of course, that's the word from which we get scandalize in English. Depending on context, it can mean to cause to fall, to cause to sin, to give offense, or to anger or to shock. There in Matthew 17, Jesus uses it in the sense of to give offense. He didn't want his exemption from the temple tax to unnecessarily offend others and become a stumbling block to the gospel. He didn't want that exemption to push others away, so he paid the temple tax anyways, even though he didn't have to. What's interesting is that Jesus uses the exact same word In verses 6 and 7, when he talks about temptations to sin. In verse 6, when he talks about those who, quote, uh, cause one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, the word, once again, is scandalizo. In verse 7, when he talks about temptations to sin, he uses the noun uh, form of scandalizo, scandalon. In other words, verses 6 and 7 read like this. But whoever scandalizos, one of these little ones who believe in me, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world for scandalons, for it is necessary that scandalons come, but woe to the man through whom the scandalon comes. In this instance, I think the King James Version actually brings it out best. It reads like this. It says, But whoso shall offend one of these little ones which believe in me? It were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and that he were drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world because of offenses. For it must needs be that offenses come, but woe to that man by whom the offense cometh. That's actually a pretty accurate rendering of this verse. It brings out the similarity in this terminology. And once you read the passage this way, I think you can understand why Jesus would connect His warning to the disciples about pride in verse 1. Their question question that they bring up in verse 1, but connecting it to verse 10 by saying, see that you not look down on one of these little ones. He's saying that because that pride, that 
ignorance, that misunderstanding of the kingdom of heaven, where the disciple starts to divide up the kingdom into haves and have-nots, into the mature and the immature, and equates these distinctions with better or worse, or more important and less important. It leads one to ignore the lesser disciple, to disregard the weaker disciple. It leads them to see their thoughts about sin and righteousness as insignificant, unimportant, inconsequential. After all, what do they matter, right? They're just some bum at the bottom of the totem pole, so they don't like my take on righteousness. Well, they're too ignorant to understand my freedoms. They're too ignorant to understand my liberties. They're still dragging their knuckles like some kind of spiritual Neanderthal who doesn't understand what Jesus said was really about. So who cares, right? Nobody cares what they think. They're they're nobody. Wrong, Jesus says. God cares. They're angels. They care. So what if they're not as, quote, advanced as you are? So what if they don't know what you know? So what if they're not as mature? That doesn't mean that God cares one iota less about them than He does about you. Do you think you matter more to God? You don't matter more to God. Your so-called superiority matters not one bit in His sight. So watch out, Jesus says. Because if you get proud, if you get cocky, and you start getting reckless... And in the process, you cause one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble. There's going to be consequences. That's the point here specifically. Jesus is taking aim at the kind of arrogant disregard that is going to cause his disciples to ignore the weaknesses of their brothers and sisters and lead them into sin in the process. The disciples are getting cocky. And Jesus is warning them that if they are not careful then they will have the least cause of anyone to boast. They'll cause one of His disciples to sin, and this will anger the Lord. And instead of receiving praise and blessing from God, they'll get anger and discipline. Many who are first will be last, and the last first. That's the kind of warning that Jesus is issuing here. It's, the, it's His equivalent to Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 10.12, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. And I think this clarifies Jesus' instructions in verses 8 and 9. If you notice, verses 8 and 9 sound very similar to the instructions that Jesus issues back in the Sermon on the Mount in regards to lust. In fact, they're nearly identical. That's because these instructions can be applied in a lot of different scenarios to a lot of different types of sin. Here, Jesus says, And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. The word here for cause to sin, once again, is scandalizo. What does Jesus mean by this? Well, it's like what Paul said, again, in 1 Corinthians 10.12, Let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Pride itself can become a stumbling block. It can itself be a temptation to sin. So Jesus warns his disciples about offending one of these little ones, and as he warns them, he tells them, so if your foot offends you, 
If it pushes you away, leads you astray, causes you to stumble, then cut it off. Same with your eye. Pluck it out. And that's a warning about any type of sin, sure. It can be applied to a lot of different scenarios, but I think here it is a reference specifically to the arrogance and pride that is going to cause one of His disciples to despise one of His little ones. Jesus says there are serious consequences to those of you who would cause one of my little ones to stumble. So if there's anything that's going to cause you to stumble and do something like that, get rid of it. See to it that you do not despise any of these disciples. The idea is that they need to take drastic measures to get rid of anything that is going to cause them to fall into the type of sin that will make them lead one of Jesus' disciples astray. And again, these may be things that are good in and of themselves. Like a foot isn't inherently bad, right? A foot's a good thing. And yet at the same time, if a foot develops gangrene, you'll cut it off to save your life, won't you? Well, that's the same type of instruction that Jesus is issuing here. There may be something in your spiritual life that isn't inherently bad or harmful. But if it's causing you to fall into the kind of arrogance and pride that will lead to the destruction of one of Jesus' disciples, Jesus says, get rid of it. Now. Like if it's encouragement from a couple of people that just, for whatever reason, causes a disciple to begin to boast in themselves, Jesus says, do what you can to deal with it. Remove it. Neutralize that influence. If it's a liberty, and not just one that makes others stumble, but one that makes you stumble, one that makes you think that you're better than others, stop exercising it. Get away from it. Literally anything that's going to get you puffed up, that's going to make you think that you're better than other disciples around you, you need to do whatever it takes to get rid of that. Because that arrogance will lead you to put temptations before others that will make them stumble and fall. And as that happens, God is going to hold you accountable for it. So this is the first expectation here issued here by Jesus. If all of Jesus' disciples are precious in God's sight, then don't lead any of them astray. Be careful that you not lead any of them astray. If they're all regarded equally in God's sight, then don't look down on any of them to the degree that you'll disregard their weakness and cause them to stumble. You must be proactive in rooting out any arrogance, any pride that would cause you to do something that would make one of them sin. Let's look now at the second expectation. This one's not as complex. We won't spend quite as much time on this one. The second expectation that Jesus places on His disciples here is this. Number two, pursue the wandering disciple. Pursue the wandering disciple. Jesus outlines this expectation in verses 12 to 14. Where he says, what do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. So Jesus closes out his first expectation in verse 10 with this explanatory statement about how The disciples, angels in heaven, are always in the presence of God. Now he starts a new point with this rhetorical question in verse 12. He says, what do you think? He says, I mean, think about it for a second, guys. And then he moves on with this new analogy that's going to further explain the point that he started in verses 2 to 6. 
This time the illustration involves a shepherd. Jesus says if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine in the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? Now, of course, uh, presumably the shepherd doesn't just leave the 99 other sheep to wander on the hillside so they can all go and all get lost too. But Jesus doesn't tell us how he secures those sheep. Presumably the shepherd does something to keep them safe. The issue is that he doesn't care only about the 99, right? But he also cares about the one. He doesn't see one sheep wander off and then think to himself, well, it's really no big deal. I mean, I still have... 99 sheep left, after all. No, right? Like, he, he counts his sheep. He counts them because he's diligent to make sure that every single one is still in the flock. And then when he notices that one is missing, he says to himself, I've got to go find it. Because every single one of the sheep matters. It's like if you've ever lost sight of your child in a department store or something like that for any significant period of time. Again, If you're out shopping with four kids and then one of them wanders off, you don't turn to your spouse and say, well, honey, I guess it's a good thing that we have four kids because number three is gone. And then just keep shopping. You you get frantic and you say, listen, honey, you stay here, watch the kids while I go look for number three or whatever their name is. You probably don't call them number three. Anyways, it's, it's the same with this shepherd. He's not content to have most, or even almost all of his sheep. He wants them all. And so he goes looking. And suppose he finds a sheep. What does he do? Verse 13, he gets excited. He smiles. He laughs. He celebrates. Now, he wasn't doing that when he was shepherding the 99 back on the hills, right? He wasn't rejoicing when he counted the sheep and saw that 99 were still there. And yet, even though this is just one sheep... In comparison with the other 99, he'll still celebrate more than he did when he counted and saw the 99 still there. And why is that? Well, it's because he already possessed the 99 sheep. But the one sheep, that sheep for a period of time was lost. It was, in a sense, out of his possession. But in finding it, he's gained it back. Again, it's just like if you were in the department store, you lose one child for a moment and then you find them suddenly you're, you're hugging them, you're kissing them, you're telling them how much you love them, and, and the other three are just kind of standing there watching. You're completely ignoring them. Now, does that mean that you love that one lost child more than the other three? Of course not. You do that if you lost any one of those kids. But you're doing this because this child matters so much to you. And for a little while, you thought that maybe you'd lost them. And now that they're back, you're just happy to see them because you love them so much and you were afraid that they were gone. Verse 14, Jesus says, So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Again, that's the second concluding statement and it explains the meaning of the illustration. God also loves every single one of His children so much that He doesn't want to lose a single one of them. If there are a million and one believers, a million and one of God's children, and then one of them wanders off, they fall into sin, that one single wandering disciple is not made any less significant by the remaining million. That God says to Himself, well, you win some, you lose some, I guess. Glad I still have a million left standing. 
No, even still, that one disciple matters to God the same as if they were God's only child. Their worth isn't diminished in any way by the remaining million. And the implication is that Jesus expects His disciples to pursue any and every disciple that goes astray in the exact same way. Again, this point is is implicit more than it is explicit, but if God cares about each of His children this much, then the implication is that the disciples need to make sure that they do not let any of them go astray, that they do everything necessary to keep every single one of these little ones from wandering. And if they should wander even still, then they need to go after them. You understand? In in verse 1, the disciples ask Jesus, who's the greatest? And in verses 2 to 6, Jesus says, all of you. There's no most important in God's eyes. You all matter. And then in verses 7 to 14, he explains what the implication of this thought is, both negatively and positively. Every disciple matters, so verses 7 to 10, don't let your pride lead you to despise any of them to the degree that you'll lead them astray. Play defense. Do whatever is necessary to keep them at home. That's the implication stated negatively. Then Jesus continues in verses 12 to 14 by saying, and if any of them should still wander off anyways, then go after them. Don't think that they're so insignificant that they're not worth the trouble. No, play offense. Do what you need to do to bring them back home. That's the implication stated positively. Every disciple matters. There's there's no more precious commodity in the universe than the child of God. And so because of this, we must take every precaution necessary to make sure that none of them are lost, that they all remain safe. If I could summarize what Jesus is expecting from His disciples in this passage, I'd, I'd, I'd picture it like this. It's as if there's a tightrope stretched over a pit of mud and filth, and that, that pit represents sin. After effectively calling every believer to faith in Christ, God has placed each and every one of His children up on that tightrope to keep them out of the muck below. But the world, of course, is already full of temptations. And so there are gusts of wind blowing across the pit. Satan and his minions, they're over there at the side, shaking the rope, swinging it from side to side, making it bounce up and down, trying to do everything they can to get one of Christ's disciples to fall. The disciples themselves, of course, they already have poor balance. It would be hard to stay on the rope even if there weren't, if it weren't for these other obstacles, but it's especially hard now considering all that's going around, on around them to make them fall. Jesus is saying that He certainly doesn't want one of His disciples to make that even harder by pushing someone next to them to make more room for themselves. When that disciple is already doing everything they can to keep their balance. I mean, to already be off balance and then have the the person next to you come along and give you a good shove, that's going to make it pretty much impossible to stay on. There's probably no greater difficulty to overcome than that, than for the person standing next to you to give you a shove. Jesus says in verses 7 to 10, don't do that. Don't get so concerned about yourself that you're not thinking about the person next to you, and so you end up elbowing them in the ribs and make them fall into the pit. On the contrary, what he wants for his disciples to do is to reach out and hold on to the disciple next to them. So if that disciple begins to fall, then the first one can steady them and keep them from falling. 
I think it's a fair. I think it's fair to say that Jesus isn't saying, you know, make sure that you're pulling and yanking on that disciple uh, every single second. I think we could all agree that if you're trying to keep your balance on the tightrope and the other person is trying to do the work for you, yanking and pulling you this way, and that it's going to make things more difficult, right? And I think it's the same way in our fight against sin. If we're already fighting, and then someone jumps in and they start yanking and pulling this way and that, saying to do this thing or that thing, it can sometimes make the fight more difficult, not less. No, the idea is to keep a hand there with a loose grip. Enough to feel the arm. Enough to feel the muscles in the shoulder. Enough to get a sense of how severe the struggle is. And as long as there are just little movements here and there, you know that the disciple's doing fine. You don't need to pull. They're keeping their balance. They're staying on the rope. But once you start to feel them lurch one way or another, then you strengthen your grip and you pull in the other direction and you keep them on the rope. So far from recklessly shoving other disciples out of the way to make more room for yourself, you actually lock arms with the people next to you and you do what you can to make sure that they all stay on. And if you think about it, it's really necessary that we do this. Again, the world is already full of offenses and it's inevitable that these offenses will come. This means that all of us are liable to fall off of the rope if we're just relying on ourselves. There's going to be a point where each of us begin to lose our balance. And if there's not someone there next to us to pull us back up right away, then we're going to end up in the mud. The only way that we're going to stay on is if we're all holding on to each other, helping one another to, keep, to help one another keep from falling. Do you understand? Perseverance, maturity in Christ, this is a, this is a team effort. And that lowly disciple next to me, the one that I think doesn't matter, they're the one that's going to be there to hold me up when I start to fall. They're no good to anyone when they're in the mud. So if I knock them down in the pit, it's going to come back around and suddenly I begin to fall and there's no one there to catch me. That's the basic force of Jesus' instruction here. Every one of his disciples matter. And so, so far from knocking any of these other disciples down, we should be doing everything we can to help them stand especially the weakest, especially the weakest, right? I mean, they're the ones that need the most help. They're the ones that we need to have the the firmest grip on. And they're the ones that we need to be the gentlest with, both in the way we conduct ourselves as we fight next to them and in the way that we hold on to them when they need correction. They're the ones that are the most liable to fall. So they're the ones that we should be paying the most attention to. They're the ones that we should be the most careful with. Of course, we're going to have to have a few different things going on for us if we're going to fulfill these kind of expectations. The first, obviously, is humility. Right? We need humility to bear with the weaknesses of the weak. We need humility to be willing to lay down our privileges for the well-being of our brothers and sisters. We need humility to keep from running over those that we despise for being, quote, immature. The second thing we need, of course, is love. We need love not only to consider the weaknesses of our brothers and sisters, to be attentive enough to pay attention to their weaknesses, to care enough to act on those weaknesses. But we also need love to pursue those who are straying. There has to be a a sincere concern for the well-being of other disciples. Enough that if we see them wandering, then we'll run after them. And finally, we have to know how to apply both of these attitudes in our interactions with Christ's disciples. 
We have to know how to live with the weak. We have to know how to pursue the straying. Now, Matthew's already covered the first part of that discussion a couple of weeks ago. How to live with the weak. Back at the end of chapter 17, with Jesus' response to the temple tax, He showed us how to live with the weak. He showed us what we should do to keep one of Jesus' disciples from stumbling. But what about the wandering disciple? Suppose we do care for our fellow disciples and and we see one of them straying. What should we do then? How should we express that love as we try to bring them home? That's what Jesus is going to explain to the disciples in the very next passage, which, which we'll look at together next week. In the meantime, let's reflect on what we know so far. Ask yourself, Am I humble enough to surrender my rights to my brothers and sisters? Do, my, do I love my fellow disciples enough to run after them when they go astray? Are there any stumbling blocks that I need to cut off in my life in order to avoid spiritual arrogance? Do I know how to live with my weaker brothers and sisters? Let's reflect on those questions. And then let's pray that God would give us the maturity the wisdom and the strength to practice this kind of care for one another. In fact, let's go ahead and close by praying for this together. Let's pray.